Here we are again, part two, Malachi. If you have your Bibles, please open them now to the second chapter of Malachi. Uh, last week we began to work through this prophecy. This is the last book in the Old Testament before turning to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, if you were here, you might remember that uh, Malachi is preaching to an embittered and disillusioned nation of Israel. The covenant children of God are here under the authority of Persia, and although they had rebuilt the walls of the city and the temple itself, the promised glory of the Lord that they had been expecting hadn't arrived. Peace and prosperity for Israel were nowhere in sight. The people began to wonder if God is really who He said He is. Hope turned to cynicism and faith became empty ritual. They questioned God's love for them. They maligned His character. They corrupted His covenant. They ignored His commands. They despised His law. They scorned His grace. They disrespected the one who had redeemed them from Egypt. They dishonored their own father. God's judgment of the people continues with this morning's text. Read with me, please. Malachi 2.10 to 3.5. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And, the, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like Fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. 
the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This ends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice at your grace at allowing us to gather and to worship you. We rejoice at the ministry that is occurring here. We thank you for your grace as we are involved in Lydia's house that you have chosen to use us to be an instrument by which you redeem others and their situations and their place in life. Lord, we pray that that work would be ongoing, that we would be emboldened to serve in that capacity that all of us would hear your gospel call in that service in some way, shape, or form, if only through strong prayer support. Lord, we think of spring storm. We ask uh, your safety for those returning from spring storm this weekend. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would impact what they heard on their hearts. They would come back changed and empowered and in love with you. Lord, as we turn to this text this morning, Lord, we ask for uh, just softened hearts. We ask that we would be able to hear this difficult message with sensitivity and the right kind of conviction, a conviction that leads not to despair, but a conviction that leads to the gospel. Realizing that, lo- th- that though we are uh, sinful, Lord, though we rebel, though we do things that are an abomination, Lord, you and your grace, it supersedes, it covers all of that. And so, Lord, that is, I pray, that the backdrop of, uh, of our hearts for this, this morning's text. It's in your heavenly name that we pray. Amen. I found some, uh, some very funny illustrations uh, that were, they're, they're, they're funny because they're just obvious. You know, you just, you wonder why people put these in a newspaper. Uh, from a newspaper from Oregon, quote, scientists see quakes in L.A. future. Probably a good bet. Uh, New York Times, modern bastion of responsible journalism, submitted the following groundbreaking headline, survey finds dirtier subways after cleaning jobs were cut. All right. Uh, The Chicago Tribune broke new grounds in science when they printed, discovery, older men have edge in longevity. Uh, The Hartford Current established that alcohol ads promote drinking. Slick advertisers. The Baltimore Sun got the attention of consumers worldwide when they printed, Malls Try to Attract Shoppers. (laughs) The Herald News of West Post, Massachusetts published the following. It's official. Only rain will cure a drought. (laughs) All righty. Finally, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel in the early 90s proclaimed, Prosecution paints O.J. as a wife killer. Probably a good tack if you're the prosecution. <laughs> Anyways, you know, headlines that are obvious, they're just kind of, they're just kind of funny. You know, it's, it's funny when someone attempts to explain how two obviously inseparable things are somehow ingeniously linked. But as funny as those headlines are, we are confronted every day with things of a more serious nature that are just as inseparably linked. For instance, the amount of clean water and food available to the impoverished in third world countries is inseparably linked to the, number of, to the number of deaths by starvation and malnutrition in those regions. 
prolonged smoking is inseparably linked to the ri- an increased risk of developing lung cancer. What we will see in our text this morning is that God's covenant is inseparably linked to his character. Man has profaned and perverted that covenant, but God, God has vowed to preserve it. Before we dig in, the language of covenant may not altogether be clear. A covenant is a solemn contract between two parties. In the the biblical sense, it's a bond made in blood, hearkening back to when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. So from the very beginning of their relationship, uh, God says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people and you will live according according to my word as such. And here in the second chapter of Malachi, we learn a bit more about how Israel wasn't, wasn't doing that. The people of Israel had profaned the covenant relationship between man and God and between man and woman. Verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi was addressing Jews whose covenant family had its roots dug deeply into the soil of the patriarchs of Abraham and Jacob. They were Israel's earthly forefathers. But God is the Father, the one Father to which Malachi speaks. Have we not all one Father? Malachi establishes their identity and then proceeds to highlight how their actions ran contrary to that identity. What they were doing betrayed who they were. Verse 11, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the identity, what they were doing, to the Lord of hosts. Malachi is not addressing interracial marriage. He's addressing interfaith marriages. What the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, speaks of as unequal yoking. It is absolutely crucial for genuine marital intimacy and relational prosperity between spouses that a husband and wife possess a common worldview and faith. In marriage, the existence of two diametrically opposed belief systems will necessarily result in one person's faith or belief, or belief system being compromised. Even if one, even if one of the marriage, the existence of two diametrically... And when it came to Israel, history showed that it was most often... The commitment and worship of Yahweh that suffered. And apostasy, that is renouncing one's faith, apostasy became very prevalent in the nation of Israel due to these interfaith marriages. Ensuring that a prospective spouse was at least a confessing, if not practicing, Jew seemed no longer to be a prerequisite for marriage in Israel. Like everything else that has been previously addressed in this letter, a practice such as this was very damaging and diluting to Israel's worship. The covenant between man and God had been profaned. And furthermore, the covenant between man and woman had been profaned. Verse 13, and this, this second thing you do, you, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Malachi begins to transition from describing how the covenant between man and God was profaned to how the covenant between man and woman was profaned by again addressing the tenor of Israel's 
worship. They had grown accustomed to shedding crocodile tears before the Lord in an attempt to move Him to action. Rather than repenting of their own sin, they lamented the fact that they were no longer approved by God. They lamented the fact that uh, they lacked His divine acceptance and blessing in their lives. But at the heart of these verses is Malachi's treatment of divorce, arguably the firmest words on the topic in the entirety of Scripture. And in expected fashion, the people respond with a question, right? Uh, the accusation that the Lord no longer regarded their offerings or accepted them with favor, they ask, well, why does He not? Verse 14, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The reason for the rupture in their relationship with God was, was immorality. Marriage vows had been violated. Marriage is not simply a contract whereby two people, two people are enabled to file their taxes jointly or enjoy the consolidation of financial assets. Marriage is a covenant of which God himself is a witness. It's a comprehensively binding relationship in which a man and a woman become one flesh and experience not just a simple contractual affiliation, but a spiritual and emotional union that is to last and deepen until death. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with, with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Uh, some translators have chosen to render the beginning of verse 16 as, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. The point is the same. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers himself with violence, meaning that uh, a, visible, a visible residue of his gross injustice is on him like the blood of a murder victim is on the hands of a killer. It's quite possible that an allusion is being made here to the offensive things addressed in chapters 1 and 2, if you'll recall. They were offering lines of a killer. A murder victim is on the hands of a killer. It's quite possible that an allusion is being made here to the offensive things addressed in chapters 1 and 2, if you'll recall. They were offering lame and blind and sick animals upon the altar. And so the illusion is being made. The blood of Israel's vile apathy stained their hands and clothes in those offerings, giving a visible testimony to their offenses, in a sense covering their garments with their violence, with their offenses. And this is the connection God is making to divorce here in Malachi. The widespread prevalence of divorce in society today has not changed God's mind on the matter. The frequency with which people get divorced nowadays and the reasons they give for doing so has not altered God's prescriptions for a man and woman in marriage. The commonness of divorce has not lessened the degree to which it offends God. And why? Because God's covenant is inseparably linked to His character. God has made a covenant with His children, 
And no matter how badly believers might fail and falter, God will not abandon His covenant. He will not abandon His chosen ones. To do so would be to repudiate His own character. God hates divorce because it absolutely runs contrary to His entire mode of operation. When Israel whored after other gods and idols so many times throughout the years, the Lord was gracious to them in giving them prophets and men and women whose sole responsibility it was to point them to God, to point them to His covenant, to point them to His enduring love. As adulterous as they were, He did not give up on them. God did not divorce Israel, not once. And you and I, as we are unfaithful to our Heavenly Father by making our bed with the American dream or any other contemporary notion of purpose and happiness, God does not look upon our adulterous, ungrateful, and selfish sin and react, react with a compulsion to abandon us. God's answer to our adultery is mercy and compassion. God, our bed with the American dream or any other concern, is only begotten son to the cross and place all of our wretchedness on him in order that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, all the saints and angels in heaven may cry out, as it says in, in Revelation, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It, is, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Righteousness made only possible by the shed blood of Christ. That is why God hates divorce. Because God's covenant is inseparably linked to His character. His only paradigm is faithfulness to His covenant. Not only, had God prof not only had Israel profaned the covenant relationship between man and God and between man and woman, they had completely perverted the very nature of that covenant. If you remember in the first chapter, verse 13, uh, Israel was tired tired of, the, of, of God's prescriptions for them in worship. And they said, what a weariness this is. But here the Lord turns the tables and says in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? I believe this to be the capstone, the culmination of chapters 1 and 2. Everything leads up to verse 17. Malachi shows how the covenant had been perverted because Israel's morality and theology was in gross distortion. You know, with each other they called evil good, and with God they once again questioned his character. Because the very character of God is not only the foundation of his covenant, the very character of God is the foundation for all morality. And yet the people had perverted it by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Israel had flipped the paradigm. We read in Deuteronomy 12, 28, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. Turning everything on its head, Israel had begun to call evil good. But not only that, Israel asserted that God delighted in it. Now, it's one thing to become complacent toward a given pattern of sin in your life 
to the extent that you grow to accept it and call it okay. But you've reached an entirely new degree of offense when you begin to assert that God actually takes pleasure in it. Contaminated offerings on the altar, divorce, intermarriage with daughters of foreign gods, and various other perversions came to, view, came to be viewed as good things in which God delighted. But the people are impenitent. They ask in the latter part of verse 17, Where's the God of justice? The question expresses Israel's perverted assumption that somehow Yahweh was no longer the God of justice that he always claimed to be. And it's really an incredible statement, this question, where is the God of justice? You see, because all of Israel's future hope in the culmination of God's promises really rested on the fact that he was going to judge the nations in all iniquity. And so to pose this question... It almost flirts with the denial of, of this truth because in their view, justice no longer existed or it was no longer operable for them. It's the same question they posed at the beginning of the book, but with different wording. Chapter 1, verse 2. How have you loved us? Where is the God of justice? Where are you? We have wearied the Lord by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. In 1996, State Representative Doug Quelland of Phoenix delivered the opening prayer on the floor of the United States House of Representatives uh, before session. And many of the delegates present, uh, they were not pleased. I'm going to read the entirety of that prayer, and uh, you may take issue with some of the uh, nuances and expressions that he uses, but I believe the overall tone of the prayer really strikes at the heart of what Malachi is addressing in this passage. Here is the prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists the needy and called it self-preservation. the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our own children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. And we have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. 
Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. In the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Time and again, as I work through this difficult prophecy given to Israel some 2,430 years ago, I realize that this message for Israel is spot on for us. So in what ways have we called evil good in our own lives? Personally, I know that I have an overblown sense of justice. Justice. I very easily get angry at other drivers on the road. I don't even think twice about putting someone in their place if I think I've been wronged. And if I don't do it verbally right there, I'll do it in my mind. I don't think I have a temper, but I'm not slow to anger. and I'm not slow to speak. But I say it's my sense of justice. It's, it's how God made me. It's how I'm wired. It's good. It's ridiculous. It's sin. And I must repent of it. What about you? What areas in your life do you call evil good? Maybe you like to gossip in your community group, but you call it prayer requests. Maybe you're a workaholic, but you call it being the provider. Maybe you like to gamble, but you call it good, clean fun. In our own ways, we all call evil good, and it's repugnant to God. So we've seen how Israel profaned and perverted God's covenant. As we move into chapter 3, we see how God has vowed to preserve His covenant because of who He is and the promises He has made. Because God's covenant is inseparably linked to His character. The preservation of His covenant will be seen through a coming cleansing and a coming condemnation. For some, the preservation of God's covenant will come by way of a cleansing. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. At the end of chapter 2, the question was posed, where is the God of justice? Well, he's coming. God says, my messenger will prepare a way for me. And all of the prophets were, in a sense, preparing a way. They were all, in a sense, messengers uh, preparing the way for the coming Lord. But there would be one, namely John the Baptist, who would announce the coming of the Messianic King. And the verse says that his coming would be sudden and unexpected. And then in the last part of verse 1, it says, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, the in whom you delight very well may be ironical. Because given the laundry list of abuses, it's clear that Israel no longer delighted in Yahweh. Not only that, but the coming of the messenger of the covenant would not be accompanied by pretty music and strewn rose petals. 
Amos 5, 18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Back to Malachi, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. To the nation in Israel's day, the coming judgment of Christ was likened to two purifying agents, one fire for metal and two soap for clothes. And as gold or silver was placed in a furnace to burn off the dross or unwanted impurities of the metal, so shall the coming judgment of Christ be. And just as lye or other caustic forms of soap are used to whiten and clean dirty garments, so shall the coming judgment of Christ be. The coming judgment about which Malachi prophesied was a coming purging, not a coming party. And the result, verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. The ungodly and the ungodliness will be eradicated. For others, however, the preservation of God's covenant will come by way of a condemnation. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, he is the God of true justice. And it's interesting to note that of all those mentioned, other than the sorcerers who simply perpetuated ancient myths and superstitions, all of the guilty parties mentioned committed some form of social evil. The actions of people might testify that they do not fear the Lord. But when he draws near for judgment, the question, where is the God of justice, will be answered. God holds true on his promises, and his justice, it will prevail. He will purge the ungodliness from his midst, and he will cast away those who reject and revile his name. The Lord came not first to bless, but to purge his people. And although we saw fulfillment of these verses in Christ, his second coming will bring more of the same and then some. God is not finished with his people. And so, you know, what are we supposed to walk away with? What's the point? How how do we apply this difficult text to our lives? It is difficult. It's difficult to read. It's difficult then to understand. And as a result, it's difficult to apply. And so what what are we called to walk away with as we leave here? Well, what I would like for us to do in the remaining moments is to uh, really wrestle and feel the weight of Israel's circumstances in 434 B.C. as Malachi prophesied this message. They're barely a shadow of a nation, having been taken captive by first... It's difficult then to understand. Their city had been destroyed, the people decimated, their religion defiled, their honor and identity devastated. Though the city walls and temple had been rebuilt... Nothing changed. Just buildings, just a wall. 
For decades they wondered to God, How have you loved us? Where is the God of justice? And for decades, who they were and what they were called to be gradually slipped away. Polluted sacrifices, corrupt priests, intermarriage, rampant divorce, the list goes on. Israel wasn't doing a thing right. Faithless and and dejected, all hope had gone. And what was God's response? How did God respond? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. I can't even comprehend that. It's absolutely staggering. Israel wasn't doing a thing right, and yet his grace superseded. God is the one and only Savior. You and I, we're just screw-ups, every one of us. When posed with the question of, you know, their eternal destiny, most people say, oh, they're basically good. And folks, there's no one good. Compared to the holiness of God, Isaiah 64, 6 says, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. The junk Israel was doing in Malachi's day, that's us to a T. We cannot save ourselves. We can't do it. We can't will it. Only God saves. He said he would, and so he will. He will preserve his covenant. Despite his disappointment in Israel, God's covenant took precedence. And even now, we continue to profane. We continue to pervert God's covenant. But in Christ, that covenant is preserved. And if you're sitting here today, understand that his second, and if you have not yet taken hold of the gospel promises in Christ, I strongly encourage you to consider. Consider the gospel. Consider Christ. Consider the outcome. Consider consider his coming. God is gracious. We bring nothing to the table, but his covenant prevails. Let's pray.